Welcome to Spirits of Whiskey. We explore the wide world of whiskey through the many colorful personalities who make it, promote it, write about it, and more. With each podcast, Carrie Moynihan, a certified bourbon steward and bartender, and yours truly, Philip Dobar, director of the Cocktail Collection, interview whiskey's most important names. From high-profile makers, blenders, and ambassadors. To out-of-the-way innovators and remote pioneers. Join us as we discover the people and elements that give the water of life its spirit. It is Whiskey Wednesday, August 26, 2020, and you're listening to Episode 15. Today, we talk to Fawn Weaver about the fastest-growing American whiskey company of all time, Uncle Nearest. But first, stay tuned for this week's Whiskey Chronicles. The Center for Culinary Culture, home to the Cocktail Collection and L.A. Food and Drink Museum, has a YouTube channel that offers a diverse and growing slate of food and drink series. Featuring a mix of how-to, lively talk, and culinary entertainment. Already streaming are culinary quickies, Le Cocktail Du Jour, V is for Vino, and this podcast, Spirits of Whiskey. Upcoming shows include Cocktails, The Grand Tour, a new series starring Jonathan Pogash, a.k.a. The Cocktail Guru, the award-winning Music and Booze with Mo, featuring Mo Herms and his series of musically spirited cocktailians. And an all-new wine podcast, hosted by Silver Pin Certified Sommelier Stacy Hunt. We're streaming culinary culture, so please visit YouTube, search for the Center for Culinary Culture, and subscribe now. The Center for Culinary Culture, telling the story of food and drink, one taste at a time. In this issue of Whiskey Chronicles, we examine what distinguishes Tennessee whiskey from other whiskeys and how it developed the reputation it enjoys today. Many ask about the difference between bourbon whiskey and Tennessee whiskey. After all, both use a mash bill that's at least 51% corn and are aged in new white oak charred barrels, two of the requirements for designating whiskey as a bourbon. Tennessee whiskey, however, undergoes an additional process before barreling a process that allows its maker to designate it a Tennessee whiskey rather than a bourbon. This process of leaching, or charcoal leaching as it used to be called, mellows the whiskey. Filtering the new make spirit through charcoal wood, usually sugar maple, is said to remove impurities and smooths out the flavors. This additional step has come to be known as the Lincoln County process, named after the location in which the original Jack Daniel distillery sat. Today, Lincoln County has been broken up into smaller counties, but it originally included the Jack Daniel distillery in Lynchburg, Tennessee, which now sits in Moore County. So why is the Jack Daniel distillery so important to the story of the Lincoln County process? Some say it's because even though other distilleries in Tennessee used this process before Prohibition, only Jack's distillery continued using it after Prohibition. This once common practice, therefore, might have been lost forever had the Jack Daniel distillery not maintained it. Still others think there's more to the story. Jack and his stepmother did not get along well. As a result, he ran away from home after his father died in the American Civil War. As a young boy, Jack was taken in by Dan Call, a local preacher and moonshine distiller. The moonshiner introduced Jack to his master distiller near a screen, a slave believed to have been rented to Call. Upon their meeting, Green started teaching Jack how to make whiskey. It's thought that this is how Jack learned about the charcoal leaching process that he would later employ as a standard procedure in his own distillery. Lincoln County was America's most productive corn cultivation district, and the county's reputation for its fine corn was accordingly shared with its whiskeys. The use of Lincoln County corn was a big selling point for Tennessee whiskeys and became a focal point for advertising seeking to differentiate them from other whiskeys. Moreover, so was the leaching process. In the early 1900s, the label on Jack Daniels whiskey bottles stated, Jack Daniels Pure Lincoln County Corn Whiskey. He never called it bourbon. That would have been unthinkable. To learn more about the specifics and legalese of Tennessee whiskey classification, please visit our website for today's show notes. Coming up, we speak with Fawn Weaver. She'll tell us more about the now legendary man who taught Jack Daniel how to make whiskey. Stay with us. Team Whiskey is the original brand for outdoor sports and whiskey enthusiasts who hosts events and sells apparel to help raise money for cancer support groups. Team Whiskey hats are unique and one-of-a-kind, custom-built, and features outdoor and whiskey-related artwork on the underbill. T-shirts are made from a quality and comfortable 60-40 cotton blend that are pre-shrunk. A portion of every purchase and event ticket sold is donated to cancer support groups. 
To learn more about Team Whiskey, their products, programs, upcoming fundraising events, and how you can help support a cancer support group, visit www.team-whiskey.com. That's www.team-whiskey.com. Today on Spirits of Whiskey, we are very lucky to have with us Fawn Weaver. Fawn is founder and CEO of Uncle Nearest Incorporated. Fawn, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Yes, thank you for being here today. Um, It's so exciting to get to talk to you. We usually start out the show, we always ask about people's whiskey journey, and I am always fascinated to hear about the start of yours because I kind of wonder... Before you found out about Uncle Nearest, did you have a whiskey love before that, or did it all shoot from your discovery of of this story? And oh, and don't I, don't leave out where you grew up. Don't leave out where <laughs> I grew up. Well, I grew up in Pasadena as the child of two teetotalers, so I assure you there was no whiskey in my home. That'll teach him. That'll up. teach him. Wait, so so how did your parents feel about this when you started oh, the whiskey so company? I, so, so my, my father is in heaven, and I trust that he has discovered once he got there that they're drinking whiskey there, too. So it's all good. Okay. My mother, when I began working on this, because, of course, it didn't start off as a whiskey. It started off as a as a journey of, of uncovering the first African-American master distiller. Mm-hmm. And when I, when I began working on it, my mother loved the elements of the scholarship fund we had for all of his, his descendants and paying for all of them to go to college. And she loved the different things we were doing with re- redoing the cemetery and all this different stuff. So she loved all of that. Then it got to the whiskey and, <laughs> <laughs> and her response, I'll never forget it is she says, baby, I love what you're doing for that man and his family, but I sure wish he made lemonade. (laughs) Her response. And as the brand has continued to grow and she's hearing about it from every side, she finally says to me last year, she says, so I guess I'm forever going to be known as the whiskey lady's mom. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, but has she tried it? Oh, absolutely not. Oh, good. Oh, okay. Absolutely not. No. Are you kidding? Oh, I love it. She's not even gone. So, you know, some people would at least smell whiskey. No, no. We've had many a biblical debate and and I've read through the Bible cover to cover and and I help her to understand it. But, you know, you're not finding it, are you? It's yeah, because it's just not there. So, so anyhow, in the debates with my father when he was alive on this topic, I used to love to debate him because he was a pastor. And it was just so much fun for me to debate him on this one. Because this one was so clear cut. I had a lot of fun with it. So anyhow. This, was, this is something like pastor's daughter syndrome to me. I don't know. <laughs> it could be. I, I was rebellious every day of my I've life. I've seen Footloose. So, Yeah, anything that you can associate with rebellion, you can just put my face right there from the very beginning. But my whiskey journey. So my whiskey journey, actually, and ironically, I used to drink the crappiest sugary alcohols. And I mean, just garbage. And for a friend of our birthday, he loved high-end scotches. And so every time we would go to his house, he would pull out some scotch for my husband and I to try. And I didn't like anything. And so we went to this, to this uh, sort of craft store or whatever, craft liquor store. And we said, we have a friend. He loves high-end scotch. What do you recommend? And he, at the time, had recommended a, a more rare Oban, I think it was. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so we bought that. We take it to the birthday party. He says, you have to have some with me. He opens it up. I taste it. I'm like, John, I still don't like it. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, that's that's and, the peony stuff there. <laughs> I still don't like it. Uh, but what I had also purchased as sort of a backup was E.H. Taylor's single barrel barrel proof. Mm. So even though he was a scotch guy, the guy at the this sort of beverage warehouse, it's in Culver City, California, and mm-hmm. he said, but you should get this too. And so we got the Oban and we got the E.H. Taylor single barrel barrel proof. And so I didn't like the Oban. He brings me a just a tiny bit of the E.H. Taylor. And he's like, well, try this. Maybe you like it. And I started sipping on it. 
And when I tell you, I sipped on this the entire night. (laughs) And up until that point, everyone knew me as the person because I grew up a teetotaler or my parents a teetotaler. So everyone knew me as the person who would fall asleep the moment you gave her a glass of wine. She'd be (laughs) at a party, rolled up in a corner on a couch. There are literally photos of me wine tasting. And if you could look at me right now, you'd see I have air quotes going wine tasting up in Sonoma County with a group of friends in which the photo is me on a couch in the lobby area of this winery sleep. So (laughs) you give me a little bit of wine, I would go to sleep. You give me a little bit of champagne, I'd go to sleep. You give me vodka and I'd be loopy. Same with tequila. And so now I have this cast strength single barrel from E.H. Taylor and I sipped on it all night. No impact. What? And so what I've now learned is everyone's pH reacts to different alcohols differently. So some Mm -hmm. people can sip on champagne all day and and whiskey will knock them out. Some people can. I am the person who can sip on cast strength the entire night with Mm -hmm. no impact. And so after that, I actually began drinking cast strength whiskey because it allowed for me to stay awake. (laughs) When we had dinner parties, so I wasn't the one who was always known to fall asleep at eight o'clock because I had been sipping on some some red wine. And it got to a place where some friends of my husband's, we were newly married and they swore I didn't like them because I kept falling asleep on them. And and I was like, stop feeding me wine. My best friend is just like that. Whenever we would go places, she would have to, she's like, well, I can't stop drinking now. Otherwise I fall asleep. And literally when we would tell her, okay, we've had enough. Cause just by the volume, not even her attitude or anything, but just by the volume, we would take it away from her and then she'd fall asleep. So we're like, okay, maybe that's a thing. <laughs> Why stop at cast strength? Now that you own a distillery, you can just go 190 proof and oh, um, you know, go 24 seven. How about we not? Uh, but, but, but it was that night that he looks, and I was the only one drinking from that bottle because everyone else was having scotch. And he looks at it and he's like, holy smoke, do you have any idea how much you drank? And <laughs> no clue. I mean, like, it literally didn't impact me. But I think it's because when you, when if it's not sugary, you're not, you know, drinking it like it's Kool-Aid, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You are really enjoying the complexity. You are enjoying the spirit. And so I drank nothing but E.H. Taylor barrel strength for the whole, I would say, first year of my whiskey journey. And then I started going to places and they didn't have it. And and someone recommended Blanton's to me as a backup. So then I began Mm -hmm. drinking Blanton's neat. And then I would go places if they didn't have that or Blanton's, I would get Eagle Rare. And if they didn't have that, so it wasn't until I got into this business that I realized I really like Buffalo Trace. <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea that everything I was drinking was Buffalo Trace. That's funny. <laughs> so give us a story about how you went from starting to like whiskey after all, and then discovering the story of Uncle Nearest and how, how that changed your life. Yeah, well, it was, it had already become my drink of choice. And I didn't know much about Tennessee whiskey. I'll tell you that I I knew about old number seven black label because who doesn't, but Mm -hmm. I had every place I went, I had skewed to the higher end whiskeys. So I had never taken the time to actually taste anything that could be found in let's call it the $20 range. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I wasn't familiar with anything in that range at all. And, and so I wasn't familiar with Tennessee whiskey because at that time there wasn't really the single barrel. There wasn't right. the, the, all these other things that they now have. And so my frame of reference for whiskey was scotch, which I had already determined I didn't like and bourbon, which as it turned out, I loved. Mm-hmm. So that was what I, that's what I knew. And we were in Singapore And my husband and I were just sitting and having breakfast together. I'm reading the New York Times International Edition. And on the front cover is a photo of a man that I recognize. Turns out, you know, of course, Jack Daniel. I think that's a face we all recognize. Right, right. And what was interesting to me about this photo is they had identified it as being a photo with his entire team, right? I now have dated, with all the research we've done, we've been able to date it back to about 1904, somewhere around there. 
And the photo is Jack and he's surrounded by all of these white workers. Mm-hmm. But if you actually look at the photo, the thing I found so fascinating and still to this day is that he had seated the center position of the photo to a black man. Mm-hmm. Now, ordinarily, when you are the CEO, the what you get the center. Right. Right. <laughs> Everybody is around you. Right. But he had seated the center position to his nephew who would take over the distillery and a black man that they were trying to identify who he was. Now we now know he was the son of Nearest Green, a man by the name of George Green. But at that time, they did not know. And it said it could be a man by the name of Nearest Green. And the headline of the story was, Jack Daniel embraces a secret ingredient, help from a slave. And so as at that point, I was about to turn 40 years old. And as a near 40-year-old woman, African-American woman, I knew that we were at the start of so many well-known American brands. But I also knew that none of it had ever been proven. Right. And so you can go back and look at, you know, the story of Lucille in, in Houston, Texas, and her family tells the story all the time of her instant raising biscuits and, and how that somehow <laughs> became Pillsbury, right? Right. But even the family can't <clears throat> definitively track it back. And so the article itself, it was really interesting because it wasn't giving any actual proof. It was giving sort of oral history. And even the descendant of Nearest Green in the article, they had this huge picture of him. And underneath it, it said descendant of Nearest Green. But when he, the question was posed to him, how is he related? His response was literally, I don't know. My mama just told me I was kin. Wow. And so that's kind of how this story was pieced together. Now, I know the journalist, he's a good friend of mine now. We have gotten to know each other so well. And the way that he explained this is, is when you get, when something lands on your desk and you think it should be pursued, but you don't have the time or the amount of resources necessary to really dig into it, then what you do is you basically write the story as a lob. And you hope that someone takes the ball and finishes the play. <laughs> and he said, and every, every journalist does it. And he says in his entire career, he has done this so many times. And it is the very first time anybody has actually taken the lob. And, and so he jokes that he can retire now because, <laughs> because someone took the lob. In that instance, it was, it was me. So the information that was in the New York Times article was that there had been a a white preacher and distiller by the name of Dan Call. And it was likely Dan Call's slave that was the teacher versus Dan Call. Now, I've done enough research at this point to know, one, Dan Call didn't actually own any slaves. So the only thing we can really sort of determine is that nearest was rented. It's something that you would see when it came to your higher skilled enslaved people. So your blacksmiths, your though your distillers, the people of that nature, you would see them rented and you'd see them yeah. rented to to multiple places. So and yeah, their time was valuable because of their yeah. skill set. Exactly. And so that's the only thing that we can think because we don't show that Dan Call had any enslaved people that he actually claimed on the slave rolls. So that's all that the story really truly knew and spoke to people who believed that it was near a screen but no one had any proof. And so Mm -hmm. what started this journey wasn't a whiskey. What started this journey was a book and a movie. So I am, in addition to being an entrepreneur for 25, 26 years, I am also a New York Times bestselling author and a USA Today bestselling author. And my Mm -hmm. husband is an executive vice president for Sony Pictures. So for Mm -hmm. us, it was a no brainer. It was a no brainer. This is a book. This is a movie. This is utterly fascinating. The whole world knows who Jack Daniel is. And so if it is possible to prove this out, this is phenomenal. So that Indeed. was the journey to Lynchburg. And, and, and the then, movie comes out when? Ah, yeah. You, so, you know what's so funny? I was literally just on the phone with the studio yesterday. Nice. Uh, so no, it is the, the feature film is very much so in the works. People think that those move a lot faster than they do. Oh. Yeah, well, especially oh. now with, with COVID, <laughs> everything's, you know, a halt. So. Exactly. And I've been adamant from day one, even with the streaming services, which is great. This had to be a feature film. Right. And, mm-hmm. and and I appreciate Village Roadshow for honoring that. So, mm-hmm. yeah, so where focus is feature film. 
You know, Fawn, they say the two shortest routes to bankruptcy are bankrolling a film and opening a distillery. But you did both, and you're fine. (laughs) (laughs) As you said, your husband, Keith, which is how you and I know each other, is an executive at Sony Pictures. But you chose to open a distillery, but now you're and now you're getting a film made. Yes. So you beat the odds on both things. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the film hasn't opened yet. We'll see. Yeah, I I think we'll be okay with that, actually. Very good. Very good. Yeah, I think we'll be good. And the book, is that is that coming? I don't know. So it will eventually come. The challenge that I see with the book that I don't have with the movie is there are some very key issues that I am missing. I do not know exactly when he was born. Mm -hmm. I do not know exactly when he died. And I don't know where he was buried. And so we have an idea of all of these things and a pretty good idea. But the 1890 census burned. And he stopped paying taxes in 1885. He wouldn't have any need to be paying. Actually, he paid his taxes for the last time in 84. Mm -hmm. Jack bought the current distillery in 85. Nearest retired when he moved, when Jack moved to the current location and Nearest's sons went with Jack to that new location. And so we we have no tax record of Nearest after 84. Well, Mm -hmm. the 1890 census burned, which means that there's a 16 year gap that is unaccounted for because I know he's not alive in 1900, but I don't know when he died in that 16 years, but before in 1900. And so Mm -hmm. I just don't think you can close out the biography of a person's life if you don't know when they died and where they died and who they were buried next to. So I'm just not comfortable closing it out. Right. What's the, what's the title of the film? Oh, I can't say that. <laughs> you know that. Are you kidding okay. me? Okay. Right well, I know. Get out of here, Phil. Okay. All right. Very good. Very like, good. That's, that's not an answer I, we're going to get. Speaking of family, Uncle Nearest is very much a family centric operation. Back in February, we hosted uh, Victoria Edie Butler. Uncle Nearest Green's great granddaughter and the relatively newly installed master blender at Uncle Nearest at a dinner, at a multi-course dinner here in Los Angeles. And first, she was wonderful. Absolutely. And and second, the story she told. I mean, after all, you know, Uncle Nearest is the man who taught Jack Daniel to make whiskey. Absolutely. I'm going to fast forward and rewind at the same time and go back to where we were. So after you read the story, started researching, when did it become apparent that this was not going to be just the movie and a book. This was, you were going to make the distillery. Yeah. Well, it became apparent on a couple of different occasions. So it became apparent pretty early in that we would do some type of commemorative bottle, right? That Mm -hmm. it would be, but there wasn't this thought process of this distillery and this huge brand. It was going to be more of a commemorative, Mm -hmm. but there were a few things that happened in Lynchburg that really sort of set this course. The first is, is when I arrived, one of the very first people who I met was, who is now Jack Daniel's eldest descendant. At the time, her mother was alive and she passed away about a year and a half ago at the age of 105. Oh, wow. Ironically, Nearest's granddaughter passed away shortly before that at 108. Oh, wow. So so I feel like everybody hung on until they could tell this story. And then they just... These sound like the proofs on special release (laughs) whiskey. Um, nope. Hint, hint. Exactly. <laughs> hint, hint. Exactly. 105, 108. Yeah, I like it. I like it. And so, and which is ironic. My favorite cast strength for Uncle Nearest is 108. Nice. Mm. Nice. Nice. About that. You're, you're welcome. About that. You're welcome. Thank you. <laughs> I appreciate that, though. So, so that the, the person who I met in the library while I was doing research, my husband and I are sitting in there. We weren't finding what we were looking for. She comes in. Uh, someone had called her because... I don't know if you remember. So I read this article. Did did you guys read the original New York Times article back in 2016? I did not. Okay. So when that original article came out, I mean, it was pinging on Apple phones everywhere. This is when Apple would like do this. It would show you whatever was like the biggest news story, right? right? So people were getting pinged like crazy over this story. It was very popular. It ended up being like one of the top 10 stories of the year for for New York Times. So anyhow, and so the story was very popular. Well, for whatever reason, you gotta you gotta love this generation of 160 characters. So many did (laughs) not read the story, but somehow came up with their own conclusions. 
Oh. <laughs> so within days, the story went be- from being what Clay Risen wrote to all of a sudden, uh, Jack was a slave owner. Nearest was his slave. He stole the recipe. He hid he Nearest. Literally, recipe. none of these things. I mean, none of these things mm-hmm. are in the article. Mm-hmm. But social media took hold of it, and I mean, went ballistic with it. And so people fill in the blanks with what makes the most sense to them. Yeah. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. And so there was a whole lot of blank filling in. So by the time <laughs> I arrived in Lynchburg. I mean, Jack and his family had been drugged through the mud completely. And so if you can imagine, you are a this at the time, second eldest descendant descendant of of Jack Daniel. You get a call from the director at the library saying that there's this black couple in town from Los Angeles (laughs) (laughs) who's doing a story on Nearest and Jack. You're not thinking we're going to give a fair shake. Right. I mean, there's not there's no chance. And so when she came through the door, she came through under the assumption that we were there to cause trouble. And she introduced herself by her family lineage real quick. (laughs) uh, But here was the thing is while everyone was talking about all these negative things on social media, I actually took the time to do something very basic, which was to order Jack Daniels biography. Mm -hmm. It's written height of the civil rights era. It comes out in 67. It's written in 65 and 66. And you've got this white reporter from Tuscaloosa, Alabama that comes to Lynchburg, Tennessee to write this definitive biography on the most famous American whiskey maker ever. Mm-hmm. And he includes Nearest Green and his boys more time than Jack's own family. Oh, wow. And so I'm reading this and I'm reading how the journalists refers to now mind you i mean tennessee was bad but alabama was worse oh, yeah. when it mm-hmm. came to race right and so this is a a white journalist from alabama and <laughs> and i mean can you imagine how many times he had to hear the names nearest and his sons george and eli for them to be included 50 times in jack's mm-hmm. biography yeah so I'm reading that, and I'm also reading how he references Uncle Nearest, which is with the same level of respect as he references Uncle Jack. Well, wow. the story is being written about Uncle Jack. And so what that said to me was a couple of things. Number one, all of the people around Jack knew how important Nearest and his family was to Jack. And they made sure that his contributions were included. That was the first thing. The second thing that was very clear to me is they absolutely weren't trying to hide him because if they were, it would not be written over and over and over again in his biography. And so it was what wasn't said that I found more fascinating than what was said. They didn't preface the reason why Nearest and his boys were being talked about so much. It was just a part of the story. And so I shared with her, I said, listen, first thing I said to her, was I am not here to harm your family's legacy. I believe that the press and specifically social media got this story wrong. I write books on love. I've never written a book that is not on love. I've never (laughs) talked about a topic that is not on love. And so I said, I am here because I believe that this story is a story about love, honor, and respect. However, If I dive in and I do this research and I uncover that Jack is not the person who I believe him to be, if I discover that this is not a positive story, that this is not a story about love, honor, and respect, someone will come down here and they will find the exact same research. Nothing that happens in the dark ever stays in the dark. It always comes to light. So someone will come here and they will do the research and they will get that information. But you have my word, it will not be me. That is not the story I'm here to tell. And after I said that, I could literally see the concern leave her eyes and she pulls out her cell phone and she says, then I'm going to help you. And she begins to give me the names and numbers of nearest Green's descendants. Wow. They grew up together. They ate around the same dinner table. They were friends. And so she knew that the story was positive. She just had to make sure that I knew that the story Mm -hmm. was positive. And once that happened, then you had not just Nearest's family I was connected to, but now Jack's family. And so before she left the library, she says, you know, that book that brought you here, she was referencing Jack's biography. She said, 
you know where he grew up and that farm where the distillery was and yada, yada, yada. You realize it's for sale. That's so uh, ironically crazy that it was simultaneously on sale the same time uh, you were looking at this. Okay, let me tell you what's crazier. It had <laughs> been on the market for 15 months. Wow. The original 313 acre property. So if you look at the home on the bottle of the label of near, Uncle Nearest, mm -hmm. that is a sketch of the home that we completely restored and preserved. And the entire second floor where Jack lived was a time capsule. They never utilized that. Wow. And so it, it literally, the door was locked because they, the owners who bought it back in the early 60s was afraid their young daughter would fall off the second floor balcony. So they closed <laughs> off the whole second floor. Wow. You literally, if you go up there, we've now plexiglassed it all in. But if you, if you go up there, the wallpaper in the areas where it's come down and there's newspaper behind it because that's what insulation was at that time. Oh, wow. All of the newspapers are dated October 10th and October 11th, 1898. Wow. It's literally a time capsule. And mm -hmm. so she shares with us that it's for sale and that we should go see it. So we tried it. She, she draws us out a map, but it was like one of those Southern maps, right? Um, so <laughs> the descriptions aren't quite the same. <laughs> and so we could not find the, the farm. And we get back to the place in it, it was landmark heavy. Exactly. Landmark we, heavy. And, and, and the last thing she says before she leaves the library, she says, I just hope there's not still a dead cow in the driveway like there was the last time I drove by. Jeez. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so we, that is that is the information we had. We tried to go look for the farm. We didn't find it. We go back to the house that we had rented in Lynchburg. And we get a call from this woman. And you're going to recognize all these names now that you know the story. But we get a call from this woman, deepest Southern accent I had ever heard at the time. And I pick up the phone and she says, this is Sherry Moore. You met my mm -hmm. cousin, Judy, at the library. She <laughs> says that you want to go see the Dan Call Farm. I'm a realtor. I can take you to go see it tomorrow. Nice. Right. So 313-acre original property, all of the water that you have in any bottle of Jack Daniel the entire time that Nearest Green was making the whiskey. So let's take that to call it 84. So anything that was being bottled, call it until maybe 89, somewhere around there, then this is the same water source. And it's never mm -hmm. stopped flowing. Wow. And everything on this property. And so we show up with Sherry and I mean, this was not rocket science for us to buy this property. It's right. American history. Right. How mm -hmm. it was on the market for 15 months is still beyond me. But it, it is American history. So Keith and I immediately knew we'll take it. We put an offer on it immediately and we bought the property. Well, we came for four days to do research. We now own a 313-acre <laughs> piece of American history. Yeah. And Sherry Moore is a member of your team. And Sherry Moore is our head of whiskey operation. <laughs> so fast forward to as I'm doing all this research, I turn that home basically into a big research room. And as Sherry is visiting with me, as I'm putting together the research, one day she says to me, you know, whiskey is in my blood. It is all I've ever done as a family business. And she said, if you ever decide to honor nearest with a bottle, I will come out of retirement to help you get it right. Nice. That was when we discovered who she was. I mean, we knew her, she was Jack's side of the family, but that's when we discovered that she had always been in the family business. But also it's when the conversation really, Keith and I, we didn't have the conversation with her. We just told her no. But <laughs> Keith and I, as we were talking about it, that's when the idea of a commemorative bottle really picked up steam. But we just didn't let her know that. Mm -hmm. And then we met with uh, some of Nearest's family. I mean, I've been with, interviewed more than 100 at this point of Nearest's right. family. If you're alive and you're a descendant, you're in my text message. Like, we, <laughs> right. I've, I've been with all of them. And so it was a one particular meeting I had. It was about maybe 40 or so of them in Nashville at a Church of Christ. And I shared with them everything I had discovered about their ancestor up until that point. They shared with me everything that they had heard growing up. And at the end of that time together, I said to them, what is the one thing that you think should happen to honor your ancestor? And the consensus was his name should be on a bottle. Mm -hmm. He deserves to have his own 
bottle. And I literally went out to I the just car. got chills right now. <laughs> <laughs> I called Sherry from the parking lot because the thing that had really kept me from even truly, truly pursuing it other than like getting information, what truly kept me from truly pursuing it was this, this idea of how much money I would have to raise to do it. Right. And I let her know that. And so I called her from the car and I said, if you will come out of retirement, I will raise the money. And that's how the brand came to be. Wow. Was and in what, a Church of Christ parking lot. <laughs> this, was, this was at the end of 2016. Oh God, that's just like mm-hmm. yesterday. Yeah. This is this is warp speed. The fact that we're sitting here in 2020 talking about a brand that's still very much in the growth phase. It's brands don't get this well established in four years. No, usually not. Uh, Brands also generally do not have a team that is working lights out with a passion that is not just about whiskey. Right. Mm -hmm. We set Mm -hmm. out to cement nearest greens legacy in our lifetime. Well, we're already 160 years behind. Right. And so there's a different kind of passion and a different level that my team works at. Mm -hmm. And they don't get tired because Mm -hmm. to talk to anybody on my Because they drink whiskey at night and and slow (laughs) sip it. (laughs) I I think it's because everybody else looks at us as being a a whiskey company. We look at ourselves as being in the legacy making business. Yes. Uh And so the way you treat it is differently. Right. Carrie and I know any number of them and they are, they are driven. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, you currently have three expressions in the market, yep. and each is named after what I believe is a significant year in the life of Nearest Green. Yeah. The 1884, the 1856, and the 1820. How did you arrive at that naming scheme? It, it, it's unusual. Well, it was. It was always. We didn't know we were going to have multiple expressions. We had Uncle Nearest 1856. After we had Uncle Nearest 1856, and the, the reason why. It is 1856 is because that is the year that I kept coming across in my research. For I mean, a number of different things happened in 1856, but the most significant would have to be out of the same book that we first learn about Nearest Green, which is Jack's biography. And it references him as being introduced to Nearest Green at, at the age of eight years old. Well, we through our research, a part of that was discovering what was the exact year that Jack was born and he was born in 1848. There's a lot of confusion out there, which I still don't know why there was so much confusion because his mother's death certificate is pretty clear. (laughs) And (laughs) you kind of can't be born after your mom died. So I I think, you know, I don't know. But dad, maybe, but mom, no, not so much. No, no. And so he was born in 1848, which means that at that time of of introduction, it would have been 1856. And at the time he's introduced, it is Dan Call introducing him. And he introduces him by saying, this is Uncle Nearest. He's the best whiskey maker I know of. Well, there were 16 distilleries in a four-mile radius. And so that means to me that by that point, Nearest had already perfected what we now know as, as Tennessee whiskey, because you can't teach who becomes the most famous Tennessee whiskey maker of all time how to make Tennessee whiskey if you hadn't perfected it by the time you were teaching them. So that is where the 1856 comes from. Then the 1884 is the last year we believe that Nearest put his own whiskey into a barrel to age because we see no records of him after that. And And that's, that's the one you said he paid his last taxes, right? Correct. Okay. And that's when Jack bought the new property and moved Jack Daniel distillery from where Nearest was to where it currently resides today. And then 1820, I I put an asterisk next to 1820. And the reason is, is if you look at the 1880 census, it has Nearest Green as being 60 years old. If Nearest knew when he was born, that (laughs) would let us know that 1820 was accurate. But African-Americans, Blacks were not considered people until Mm -hmm. December 6th, 1865. We were property before that time that all of a sudden in 1870, the census takers were walking around and asking black people, how old are you? They didn't know. And so you had white people guessing how old a black person was. I don't know if you've mm-hmm. ever tried to guess a no. black person. Black, black don't, don't crack. crack. Black <laughs> don't crack. And, and so, I mean, people look at me and I constantly, when I go into all these different whiskey events, because it's all a bunch of old white men, right, is what, what has always been 
the sort of the people that mm-hmm. you're, you're used to seeing running these distilleries and these businesses. And I, here I come and, and they look at me and they think I'm in my 20s. And so I'm, I'm generally double the age that people think that I yeah. am. I used to work with a woman when I was in my late 20s and I thought she was 40 and she was 65. Exactly. Exactly. And so if you can imagine all of these, and I actually have a photo of the census taker at that time. It's the funniest thing. And someone in, in Lynchburg, cause nobody in Lynchburg throws anything away. And so it was the ancestor well, of somebody in Lynchburg. Right. <laughs> and so they show it to me and I'm like, there is no way this person should have been census taking. Like it's, it's, did you ever see the movie, my cousin Vinny? Yes. Oh, yes. Best movie, right? You remember the older black woman with those bottle cap glasses? Oh, yeah. And, uh-huh. Yes. This is this guy. <laughs> and you're like, he should not have been the census taker. There's absolutely no way. And so 1820 has a, has a big old asterisk, which is the only date that we can ascribe to Nearest's age. But I don't actually mm-hmm. think he was born in in 1820 where the 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 years Mm -hmm. come from but the reason why they're the different expressions is a part of my love for whiskey is how different the whiskeys are at different ages right and the complexity and the nuances it's why i didn't know that everything i loved was from buffalo trace (laughs) 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 and there's just something so special about whiskey that i absolutely love because just just moving a barrel to a different part of the warehouse oh, is yeah. trying to change how it tastes. And so yep. once I realized that you don't have to add flavoring, you don't have to add any all, all of this, you know, fancy stuff people are doing, all you got to do is move that whiskey around and age it a little mm-hmm. longer to get a very different, unique profile. So the 1884 change the altitude by 20, 30 feet. Right. And you have a different whiskey. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. My favorite of the Jack Daniel brand, ironically, is their lowest level. And I don't, I think they have it in, in, in California and we, we have it here, obviously in Tennessee, it's their green label. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I enjoy their green. Now, if you look at the color of their green label, it's gold. Where if Mm -hmm. you look at the color of the old number seven, it's, it's a, I mean, it's, completely different color spectrum. Right, right. And and if you taste them, the flavors are completely different. But the mm-hmm. green label is the lowest level. They're right. at the mm-hmm. bottom of the ricks. And and so mm-hmm. once I discovered how different whiskeys can be just by how you age them, I was like, "Oh yeah, we got to have different expressions." Mm-hmm. And <laughs> and our expressions taste completely different. Very much so. So I know that the 84 and the 56 are basically the staples. And then the 20, is that a special edition or is that going to be a staple as well? The 18, all three of these are staples. Okay. The difference is, is the 1820 is only available at the distillery or we will do special releases to our top retailers and our, but the rule is, is every bottle must be sold out before it ever leaves our distillery. Nice. And so uh-huh. it, it okay. never hits the shelves. So it's, awesome. it's, it's strictly allocated. Yes. Oh, very. Okay. Very. Okay. And it's single barrel. So it's always changing. It's always changing. Mm-hmm. And are you planning to do any more, more expressions that will become a staple? Or are you just going to do a special release type? We have one forward? other that is coming out uh, likely next year. We've had this particular one in R and D for three years. Oh, wow. And we've been playing with it. I won't give too much away, but I will say there's nothing else on the market like it. And we will not put it out till we've perfected it. Okay. And, and does that have a number associated that you're not going to tell us what it is? <laughs> this one is the first one that has no number associated. Oh, wow. Cool. Oh, okay. The nearest and Jack initiative, this partnership yeah, uh, with Jack Daniel. So much fun. Which is funny. As soon as I get off with you, I've got to hop onto there. Okay. And sorry, <laughs> I can tell you that as difficult as this period of time is everyone with this racial injustice reckoning that our country is having and realizing, oh, wait, we can't be equal if everybody's not equal. Right. And, but I have to tell you, and I was having this conversation with Catherine the other day, that this has been one of the most amazing timeframes in my life because every single day I am talking to either women or people of color in this industry and helping them to navigate to success every single day. And it, a part of that is this nearest and Jack advancement initiative. 
So we were already working on the nearest green school of distilling together. Mm-hmm. My head of whiskey operation, Sherry Moore, and their AGM, their VP of, of nearest green distillery, Melvin Keebler, they had already written the curriculum together. It had already been approved through Motlow State College, which is the fastest growing college here in Tennessee. And it was already sitting to get accreditation approval with the state. So that had already happened before all of this went down. And we were trying to fill the pipeline with people of color and African-Americans because Jack Daniel Distillery had been going out to HBCUs for years, Mm -hmm. so your historically black colleges, and trying to get people of color that were in those schools in the STEM programs to see distilling as an option. And I think in five years, they were able to convince like two or three. What? Like, well, we're, I mean, you know, we're a- So they've been a good faith effort and they weren't getting takers. Well, it it was simply showing them that there was a, there was another avenue that they could go. Mm -hmm. And it was simply, it wasn't that they were being moved to the front of the line. It was simply that they were trying to bring more people of color into the industry because we don't get very many applications from people of color in our industry in American Mm -hmm. whiskey. And there's, that's a whole other topic from a whole other conversation, but we just don't get very many applications. And so they were, this was how they were trying to do it. And this goes back about five years. And so this nearest green school of distilling, this was a way of really creating a pipeline. Mm -hmm. When everything went down in March, where you had the death of Ahmad, you had the death of George Floyd and the death of Brianna, when all of that happened, we all got on a phone and said, listen, this is a moment we can do something really special. We were creating sort of the slow roast version of creating more diversity in our, in the American whiskey industry. Now we have the opportunity to create the microwave version because who's going to tell us no, (laughs) right? Right? No matter what idea we have, we're going to get the support. And when you think about it, they're what a $30 billion market cap company with shareholders up the wazoo. And one of the tenants of our program is the business incubation program, BIP which we, are, we have come alongside Black-owned brands and distilleries, and we are essentially sharing all of our resources with them. Not just capital, but you're talking about our, our lead of operations, our head of maturation, our head of sales, our head of distribution. We're sharing our distribution networks and our PR firms, our advertising firms. We're paying for it. Yeah. And we have no percentage in any of these companies. Wow. Now, when has a publicly traded company ever been able to convince shareholders this was a good idea? Yeah, <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't work that right? way. <laughs> right. And so we're essentially raising up competitors, if you will. Right. And But it's the right thing to do. Uncle Nearest mm-hmm. should not be the only successful Black-owned business in our industry. And so we've True. taken the lead of really helping to navigate. And so right now, I mean, currently we are actively helping five different brands simultaneously. Wow. Which makes for, you know, a full email box for me. I can tell you that. <laughs> I'm sure. Well, I would tell you, we would, we would like to get more on spirits of whiskey. We've made an effort to make sure that we have gender parity and to the degree that, that interviewees exist, ethnic parity. Yeah. And um, hopefully we can get some of these people on this show in future. Absolutely. Yeah. I, again, everything you do just amazes me. I think you're fantastic. And I think what you do for women and people of color and the whiskey industry is, is like no other. And that said, do we have time to taste or do you have to run off? I have to run off because okay. I've got an NJAI call in a couple of minutes. All right. We would Very love good. to catch up with you again in the future. And maybe we will we'll save these to taste with you another time with, with this new one that has no number that's coming. And we can talk, ah, and we can talk cocktails. And we'll yes. talk cocktails. Yes, yes, awesome. yes. I would love that. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Fawn. It was so great thank to have you on the show today. Awesome. Thank you, Carrie. We'll thank talk you soon, Fawn. Thank you so Thanks, very Fawn. much. World of Wheezy is up next. Stay with us. Hey, Louise, how are you today? I'm doing quite well considering this heat wave we got going on here. I know, it's ridiculous, ridiculous. So um, I hope you're making some lovely drinks with the Uncle Nearest whiskeys that I sent over. And if not, what would you, uh, what would you suggest to do with them? 
Well, I just am in love with these Uncle Nearest spirits, and I did not make cocktails. I drank them straight because, nice. you know, that's that's where I'm at these days. <laughs> so what I did, the Uncle Nearest 1856, the minute I tasted that, I knew that I wanted to play with those upfront spicy notes while also complementing the fruity sort of sweet, corny undertones. Mm-hmm. So, you know, immediately when I'm thinking of that, I, I started thinking something salty, something sweet, spicy, but also unpredictable. So I figured that, you know, we're in the pandemic. It's quite okay if you want to drink your bourbon in the morning. So <laughs> how about if you're going to do that, you pair it with some French toast with pepper jelly, stone fruit, and crispy country ham. Oh, wow. That is my pairing with this phenomenal spirit. Well, considering it is the morning, I may have to go try that because I have not eaten yet. (laughs) Yeah. You know, this is something that can be done, I guess, on a very simple level. If you have some store-bought pepper jelly at home, all the stone fruits right now are looking beautiful. The peaches, the plums, the pluots, cherries, all of that. The one main thing with this is the country ham. Now, if anyone out there has ever lived or spent time in Tennessee, you know the glory of country ham. It is a salted cured ham, uh, There is a place near where my mom lives called Benton's. And to me, they are the pinnacle of country hams. Right. And it is, you know, it's cured. So you can, you can slice it and eat it raw the way you would a prosciutto. Oh, wow. You can also cut it a little bit thicker and fry it up in a pan. Now you don't really want to sit down to a big slab of this stuff, but a few bits of it fried up as a topping with the stone fruit and the pepper jelly and some French toast is just a nice salty little crunch addition to all of this. Very nice. Very nice. Yeah. Delicious. Okay. Well, then I I don't have the country ham, but... You gotta make sure it's a traditional country ham. Got it. They are very different than than your Easter hams that we all know of. So, but in the meantime, if you know, you don't, we can't get this in LA. I mean, it's, it's not very common here. So in the meantime, fry up some bacon, use that instead. Oh yeah. I have some good applewood smoked bacon right now. That's amazing. You just need something salty and porky, and you're good. (laughs) Salty and porky. That's my favorite line. All right. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to tell us about this delicious treat. And I can't wait to try that, as usual, what I always say, because everything that comes out of your mouth goes straight into my tummy. And there you go. So next week, we will talk to you again about our next whiskey. Sounds excellent. Please visit our website to see our show notes on today's podcast at spiritsofwhiskey.com. That's whiskey with an E. We'll include links and supporting documents from today's Whiskey Chronicles, as well as tasting notes and recommendations from today's World of Wheezy. As always, you can see our upcoming topics and guest roster and links to past shows. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, Salon. Spirits of Whiskey is a production of First Real Entertainment and the Center for Culinary Culture, home of the Cocktail Collection, and is available on Anchor, Spotify, and wherever fine podcasts can be heard.